0: Today on Startups for the Rest of Us, we dig into listener questions and we discuss building a SaaS with little development experience, using no code for your MVP, productized services, stair-stepping, bootstrapping a two-sided marketplace. Really, questions ran the gamut. There's some great questions today. That Ruben Gomez and I cover. You know Ruben is the founder of signwell.com and Earthlingworks on Twitter, and I really appreciate him joining me today. Before we dive into those questions, Steve from SkillsDB Pro sent in a video ask. He went to startupsfortherestofus.com. He clicked ask a question at the top, and he didn't ask a question this time. He said, They do a lot of enterprise sales, and he wanted to offer some thoughts and ideas that haven't been covered on the podcast, but that have helped him and his team scale his company. So we'll roll that here.
1: Hey Rob, Steve from SkillsDB Pro coming to you from Bozeman, Montana. Long-term listener, appreciate all your help. I started my business by accident, and I think I would be totally lost without you. I'm going to talk a little bit about selling to the enterprise. It seems to be a big subject on your podcast, and it's something that we do a lot of. So I have a fair amount of experience with it. And we have different approaches to it than you've mentioned in your show before. So I thought I'd share them quickly. First, what we will do is when we're selling to the enterprise, we keep our dollar a seat SaaS model. But then what will happen is, so for example, we took on a brand new client, state one of the states, who I'm not going to mention their name but um, it's a thousand users. So it's only a thousand dollar a month contract. But what we did is that we added an additional 18,000 or an additional $3,000 a month of project support services at the beginning. And it's an amazing sale because they go, oh, it's so cheap, it's only a dollar a head. But then they'll go ahead and pay the $3,000 a month because it's a separate line item for project support services. And it's such an easy sell because all you have to do is say, well, do you really have time to do this? And almost always, they'll be like, yeah, we could really use that help. And inevitably, they almost always renew that service. And that service is very, very high margin item for us. So I wanted to throw out the project support services. Uh, We keep our SaaS prices lower, but we get a lot of that enterprise level stuff for for all the things that are enterprise. I don't have time to go through it here, but The other thing that will happen a lot of times is they'll ask for custom programming, and we always charge for that, and we call it expedited updates. And if they're not willing to pay $5,000 for an expedited update, they really don't want it. Anyway, got four seconds left. Hope you find that helpful. If you want a little information, reach out.
0: Thanks for those tips, Steve. I love the naming most of all, project support services and expedited updates. I think it's a mental shift like when I went from calling things betas to calling them early access. And having that naming is and can be important. And so I appreciate you writing in. If you have a tip for listeners of the show that you feel like have never been covered, feel free to go to StartupForTheRestOfUs.com, click that, ask a question, and send in a video or audio snippet, and we can pass it along to the listener base. And with that, let's dive into listener questions. Ruben Gomez, thanks for joining me on the show again. Thanks. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, it's always good to have you. Folks know you as the founder of SignWell and BidSketch. And you've been on the show many times talking about plateaus, talking about rules of thumb in terms of trial to paid, you know, funnel metrics, and of course, answering listener questions. Ready to dive into our first one? Yep. Let's do it. All right. So this first one is from Habert at simplyrem.com, simplyrem.com. And it is a video question. Oh, I, yes, I should mention, if folks in an audio or video questions, they can record yourself on your phone, send me a Dropbox link or a Google Drive link, questions at startups for the rest of us.com, or you can go directly to Startups for the Rest of Us. There's an Ask a Question link in the top nav, and then you can just record yourself right on the website, on your phone, or on your computer. Those go to the top of the stack, and if you send in text questions, we always get to those as well. They just have slightly lower priority, but Heybert sent in a video question. So we will roll that now. Hey Rob, my question is what level of expertise would you say the founders of a B2B SaaS should have in order to create a successful product? I mean, would you say that they need to be, you know, senior developers, or would you say even if you're a beginner and as long as you know how to get by, You should start, and there's a chance you might get somewhere. Uh, I just want to know what your thoughts are on this. So I like this question. I think oftentimes we get the, do I need to be a developer or not? And it's a very binary way. But Habert, I think, is asking, how much of a developer do I need to be? And I want to be clear. I don't think he's asking, do I need to be a developer to start a SaaS? right to, to be a founder because we know a bunch of founders craig hewitt and other non technical founders we could insert here boy jordan gall right and and there's several so I, I don't think we answer you know do you need to be a developer in order to start a saas i think specifically he's asking how good of a developer do i need to be to code to actually build the saas what are your thoughts
2: so it really depends on the complexity of the of the app i mean It's hard to generalize when it comes to something like this because you could have SaaS products that are relatively simple, more crud like and even certain parts might be people-powered so that there's really nothing complicated to build out. And those, I think anyone who's just starting out with development that has a few months of experience that could do some of the basics would be able to build that out. The problem is it's just not going to be good code. It'll probably have to be rewritten in, at a later time, even the more simple version of it. Like if it's the first product that somebody's building out, the the first thing, it's it's just not going to be very good. Yeah, I think it gets tricky when we're talking about something that's complex. And I think the tough part is that not only will or potentially could there be some really bad bugs and things like that, but it can drag on for a very long time, way longer than you expect, especially if you don't have experience like estimating projects and uh, how long something will take to build. Everyone, even very experienced developers, think things will take way less time than they actually uh, take. So I think there's real danger there and... Somebody who's looking to do that should probably consider at least hiring if they can't afford a you know full time dev or part time dev to it could just be somebody to help mentor them or you know coach them on some of the more complicated parts or outsource like the more difficult parts. It doesn't have to be all one way or the other is what I would what I would say.
0: Yeah, I like that take on it. My first thought when I read this was HitTail, the SaaS app I had before Drip, it was kind of just one feature with a bunch of tables. And you could have built that, you know, it, it, there was some scaling issues because it was it had a JavaScript tag, right? And so it would, it would send a request back every time you got a search engine hit. But realistically, you could have hacked it together. In fact, it was hacked together. The code base was a, not great. It was classic ASP and it was a spaghetti mess when I acquired it. And then we rewrote it in Ruby on Rails, but that complexity, I think he could pull it off. But then to build Drip, this, which is exactly what you're saying, is like simple versus not simple, right? And and the cost of building an app and getting some traction, and then running into performance problems that are. Literally unsolvable without a complete rewrite of a, at least of a section of your code, pretty easy to do if you really don't you know you don't have the experience as a developer as soon as you get into anything that needs to be performant, you just don't think about queues and being async and, and threading. I mean, there's just these advanced topics that it's years in that you really get your head around these. And so I think, I mean, we have a couple questions later about no code. I think low code is super interesting these days, right? Where you learn enough JavaScript that you can get take a bubble or an Airtable in a Zapier and you kind of tie them together and you can write some JavaScript when, when you hit the edge of that platform where it doesn't, you know, Airtable or or Bubble kind of lets you down and you can drop into the code and do it. And I think that's super interesting because then no code and low code don't scale that well anyways. (laughs) You know, I mean, that is one of the drawbacks to them is they don't scale like true production SaaS code. And so if you can find something to build that you can do in no or low code, I think that's interesting. Or I do think, coming back to the stair step, like a step one app where you build for... You know, the HubSpot Salesforce marketplace, you build for the Zendesk or Help Scout marketplace, or you build for Heroku or... Atlassian or Cloudflare or DigitalOcean. There's a whole list of these. We'll link it up. It's uh, rocketgems.com. But Rami, who runs Rocket Gems, he is a fan of the stair-step approach, and he put together a list of 68 B2B SaaS marketplaces with opportunities for indie hackers. And I didn't even know 68 existed, right? You, you've you always heard me say my my top five. I'm always like, it's WordPress, it's Heroku, it's Shopify, it's, you know, there's like two others that I sometimes write up. But I mean, for there to be 68 of them is, is pretty intriguing. And I think building in a marketplace like that is a lot simpler. I don't think your code has to be nearly as complex because you're building like an add-on to Shopify or an add-on to Freshdesk to allow a piece. It's not a full-blown SaaS app. Do you agree with that?
2: Yeah, generally I would agree with that. It depends, right? We we know really complicated ones. But I kind of like that guideline as uh, doing that and looking into something that you could build with no code maybe most of the way and then using code for the rest of this stuff. Because the other thing that I was thinking about is if they don't have experience, how likely are they to know that something is complicated to build or not, right?
0: Right, when, when you and I say complicated versus not, how do you even judge that if you have never built a production app, right?
2: And this is where, man,
0: I have this whole, on a future like solo episode, I had this idea or just this thought of like, Working for other companies and working for whether it's startups or big companies, I think that experience is so valuable, not just as a dev, but becoming, hiring, learning to hire people. Like I didn't learn to hire people when I was running my own startup. By the time I was there, I had already been part of. 30 or 40 people's hiring process where I, whether I was the manager or a technical interviewer or something you're doing phone interviews I did like 100 phone interviews phone screens more than that actually over the course of 2 years at this one job I was like a tech lead there and I just I liked doing it it was 15 minutes and I would ask people try to dig into their stuff so by the time I went to hire my first contract dev as a as an entrepreneur I at least had that experience and similarly by the time I went to write my first line of production code that I owned I had been doing it for several years and I think there's a trade-off. I wished I didn't have to do those things because I didn't like working for other people but I did come into it with certain skills that I learned during the day job and I think that's applicable here. Is there an opportunity? I know, you know, Habert, that you don't want to go out and, and get a, a day job but it is interesting that the, the f- most learning I've ever done, the fastest I've done it in terms of being a developer is once I started doing it 40 or 50 hours a week for someone else.
2: Yeah, I agree. It is very different. Before I got a job as a developer, and I had a job as a as a dev at one point, I was doing projects on the side for myself for people, like and that was okay. But I didn't learn nearly as much as when I actually had got a, my first development job and had to, you know, basically work based off of other people's real world business requirements. Yeah, and it's a
0: trip. You know, it's, it's weird to be on a startup podcast and tell someone to get a day job. And I'm just, <laughs> honestly, I'm just presenting it as one option. Just an option that I think worked for you and I. Because you and I both did it at our day jobs, and that's one yeah. reason that yeah. that we could do it. But then we have a, tons of examples of folks who never did it at a day job and are still really good. Derek Reimer is a good example, right? He never had a job coding. I mean, well, his job coding was when I hired him to do contract work on Hittail and then hired him to do contract work on Drip, but he already had the skill set that he had self-taught. So you can totally self-teach this as well. And I, I do like the idea that you talked about like hiring a more senior dev to mentor you and to look through your code and to... You know, even if it's a few hours a week, you do whether you pair a program or whether they look through your commits and they tell you what sucks about what you're doing, I think that could be amazing. You know, I think you can make a lot of progress doing that.
2: Huge and not expensive. No. Compared to yeah, hiring somebody to build it that's right. entirely for you.
0: That's right. So awesome. And that's one we haven't received. We've received related questions, but not exactly like that in the past. So thanks for the question, Habert. I hope that was helpful. Next question is another video. Question from Jim Huffman.
2: Hey, Rob, how you doing? My name is Jim. I live out in Seattle. Big fan of the podcast. I had a question for you. I want to launch a SaaS company, but I'm thinking of
0: launching it first as a productized service to test if the value we deliver works, and two, if the customers would actually be excited for what we're offering and have good retention. For context, we're a growth marketing agency called Growth It. We're good at driving traffic and growing things. We're weak in developing software products. So we'd love your advice. Is this a good idea or is this a really dumb idea? Thank you. I like this question. What do you think, Ruben?
2: I think there's a difference between uh, productized service and basically software. What they're talking about is done for you. And... Yes, you can sort of kind of test the value that you're delivering to people, but it's not the same thing. It is nowhere near the same thing. You can get a lot of insights into what you might need to build for a product where somebody uh, signs up themselves and then they use the tool or their team uses the tool to do the work that your team was doing for them. And so that they at the end get the value that they seek But I've known multiple people who've taken this approach and then built out SaaS and had a tough time selling the SaaS. Generally, often it's people who tend to be not as strong building software. So that's another, it's almost like, yeah, if we prove this out, then we can build the software almost like an afterthought. But in reality, building software, Involves a lot if the person or if themselves or their team is going to be using the software to try and get this value. There's a ton there. What do you think?
0: I think you're right. While I like the idea of doing a productized service because I think I think a productized service as a business is very similar to running a SaaS. You just don't have the software. You don't have the product. So I think the learnings of having the funnel. These folks are already good at it. But the learnings of Building the funnel and the customer support and the you know dealing with essentially feature requests or changes or whatever, I think there will be something there. But your point is also valid; is very valid that taking that same productized service and trying to spin it into a SaaS. I don't know. I'm trying to think of a time when I've heard that work. Actually, I would like it to work.
2: <laughs> Stelly with closed.io, right? That's Except the one. That- yep. We don't know how many of their existing customers moved on to, because it is literally somebody else doing the work for you to, okay, now you have to do the work using this tool. And that's, there's a big difference there. That's the hard part.
0: Yeah, Steli, they had built a CRM internally because they didn't like any of the CRMs and they had a... Elastic Salesforce, basically, where they were you could add new salespeople, and they built their own CRM, and then they just not just, but they released that CRM as a product. But what they, yeah, and I think that's the thing is so much of the value is in the done for you. See, I think if you could, here's a counterexample that is totally theoretical, and I'm making it up, but I always imagined like Hit Tail. Again, coming back to Hittail, that was just tie this thing into your website. It gives the app, your keywords that you're ranking for, and then it suggests keywords that you should be targeting and gives them a one to five ranking or something like that. That was an algorithm that could have been run on an Excel spreadsheet.
2: You people could have done right. Exactly.
0: People could have done it. So that's like, you know, I talk a lot about human automation, right? Hiring a VA to do it. That I think is interesting, because it wasn't done for you. We didn't go out and then do the SEO for you. But it's like, if Hittail could have been launched originally as not software. It could have been built into Airtable or into Bubble, you know, to come back to no code. And just the work and the mental grind or whatever would just, the algorithm is just a human in a, in a spreadsheet. But that's different than what you're saying. Like most productized services are not that. Productized services tend to be a done for you, right? And they're, it's done for you editing, podcast editing. It's done for you SEO content. It's done for you cold outreach and the service is the value, the software to do it has much less value.
2: I think it can work if, let's see, if it's maybe like something small in scope, done for you keyword research, right? Like you were t- talking about with Tell, And if your software product is really close to the experience that they're getting with the done for you service, I think that, that'll work.
0: Yep, and here's the thing. If you're running an agency now, and your revenue is spiky, a productized service will even that out, assuming you have decent churn. You can make it to where 30K MRR, 40K MRR with a productized service in not a long time if you have something that's a lot of value and then you, there is advantage to that. But what we're saying is if it's truly a done-for-you service, trying to spin that into then build software to do it is really, really hard and we haven't traditionally seen that work. Versus if you start with the idea of a service that isn't done for you and it's just a small lift that you essentially are human automating and as you said, Ruben, the experience is almost equivalent. right? You still get those keywords in a spreadsheet, right? <laughs> whether it's in the web browser or whether it's a CSV that's emailed to you. Then the value is almost equivalent, so
2: yeah, it's an interesting uh, distinction, yeah, and I do like the idea also of uh, productized services for uh, revenue early on and maybe fund the building of a tool, but then again it's you know it's moving over to a tool and all the all those other challenges.
0: Right. That is part of the stair step. I could see someone doing productize like Craig Hewitt did, right? Productize service with Castos Productions, formerly called Podcast Motor. Then he acquired a WordPress plugin that was podcast hosting, then he built Castos, you know, which is now doing really well. And that's the thing. If I were doing a productized service, I would start to think about what what app can I acquire? Like, do I then have the revenue to buy something, even if it's nascent? But that's, of course, that's always my mo, right? Is to I want to jump, I want to jump to product market fit if I can, even if I spend tens of thousands of dollars and it it saves me eighteen months. If I can fund that with another project, that's worth it to me.
2: Yeah, and in the Craig example, uh, notice how he he didn't create a product that did what the service was. Right.
0: Nope. And he later merged them in, but they still are two separate products. It's podcast editing and production, and then it's podcast hosting, both public and private podcasting, obviously. Castos.com. All right. Thanks for the question, Jim. I hope that was uh, helpful. This week's sponsor is Trust Shoring. TrustShoring helps you find reliable pre vetted developers or software development agencies. Turn to TrustShoring if you need to build an MVP, scale your team or product, or you have issues with your current developers or code base and need guidance on your SaaS journey. TrustShoring makes software development and remote hiring easy for all kinds of founders, technical and non technical. Book a free, no commitment call with TrustShoring CEO Victor Parolnik, who I've met at many microcomps. Visit TrustShoring.com to book that call. That's TrustShoring.com. Next question is from someone who asked to remain anonymous. And he says, I want to thank you so much for all the value you put out into the world. You and indie hackers have taught me so much more than I learned in school, studying marketing and entrepreneurship. Ha ha. That's yeah, that was my experience with trying to look at junior college courses, you know, of uh, entrepreneurship Here's my dilemma slash question. I work at a VC-backed startup pre-seed that is blowing it, making all the mistakes that being bloated with VC money lets you make, not talking to customers, building tech because it's cool, not because it solves a problem, spending way too much money on stupid stuff like offices or PR for a product that's not ready for PR yet. So Ruben, this is when, you know how we say like, more money in the hands of of someone who knows what they're doing can get you there. It'll save you years, right? Yep. More money in the hands of someone who doesn't know what they're doing, it will just burn burn money like uh like it's on fire.
2: Oh, we've seen a lot of that recently.
0: Yeah, a oh, big time, right? With Bolt and well, no, it's not Bolt. It's the other one, Fast. Fast, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I'm yeah, we see. Oh, and not just them. We see it in a, in a lot of stuff.
2: Right. No. All all the time.
0: This experience has pushed me into looking at independent. Startups rather than big venture backed. I fell down the rabbit hole and I came up with my own business idea. I'm planning to solve my own problem with tech, validate the idea, talk to as many customers as possible. The idea is a two-sided marketplace and it's basically a matching service. I'm going to keep it anonymous because he asked me to. And he says, it solves a problem that I had a few years ago. So I built out an MVP using Bubble. Bubble is just, it's like they're sponsoring this episode or something. I think that's the fourth fourth mention. And then the next question or two is is about no code as well. But he says, here's the issue though. It's a two-sided marketplace, which is a red flag, serving a market that's notoriously a pain in the ass to serve. They are price sensitive. This means higher churn and fighting two wars at once. Yes, I often say it's its like you're launching two products at the same time. What could be easier? The question I'm struggling with internally is do I ditch the idea and all the work I've done to start a B2B business with way lower churn or keep going a little further on this one and see where it takes me? And at this point, I don't believe he's launched. It's still He's talked to customers and he said it's something they want and I think they will pay for, is the sentence. He says, my take is I should keep pushing, especially because it's a problem I'm passionate about. I've done the hard work, now I just need to push through this plateau. I'm not sure what the plateau is because I don't think he's launched yet. Maybe just no one is actually signing up. I'm also concerned that I'm overthinking this, but I'd love your thoughts on this generalized problem of sunk costs and when to pivot or persevere slash how selective to be with business ideas when getting started. Thanks for letting me rant on here. And thanks again for all you do. Wow. So, yeah, there's something there. What, what are your thoughts? I, you know, my everybody knows my thoughts on bootstrapping two-sided marketplaces. So let's, let's, let's hear what you think about his scenario.
2: Well, I think I, I kind of like the higher level question of when to quit and when to continue. Does he say how long he's been working on this?
0: No, it's light on details. And that's the thing I've talked to a bunch of customers. Like, I don't know how many that is. And it's something they definitely want. And I don't know how he definitely knows that. And I think they will pay for. So what does he think they will pay? You know what I mean? It's like what I would almost want to know what, what exactly have this many people said. But with that in mind,
2: yeah, continue. It's hard to say because a lot of details are missing from this. Two-sided marketplaces are, are tough. Uh, I think everyone who's tried them or knows about someone who's built one feels like they're tougher. It seems like I would not recommend them for people just getting started. I would not go into it myself unless I felt like I had a clear advantage in one area or the other. If I'm just starting from scratch and I have no advantage... I would lean against two-sided marketplace. Besides that, as far as whether to continue or not, I think it kind of depends on it kind of depends on whether how much work I mean there are a lot of things that I wish we had uh, more details on, but it depends on if you're the type of person who tends to just work on stuff for too long and not switch. We know a lot of people like that. I think they should lean more towards Uh, switching if they're having those thoughts sooner than because they usually don't and they just stick with stuff for too long. And if you're the type of person who just has a ton of projects in your history and you're, you're never finishing these projects, maybe not this one, maybe it's okay to switch on this one, but I would lean towards the other direction. Right. Like I saw recently there was a good Twitter conversation about somebody asking, I've been working on this for two years. It's at like two to I think it was like two to three KMR. Should I keep working on it? And and that's all they asked. And there, there were all sorts of it was interesting to me how many people were like, yes, like continue, keep going because it can take time, all this stuff. And my first thought was two years is a long time. I mean, there's a opportunity cost is real. That's a real thing like, yeah, another two years, and then maybe you're double at that mark. There's a lot of context that's missing from that as well. But generally speaking, because of my expectations and based off of what I've seen, that's just too slow. And I don't think it's a good thing that people spend years, like this is years off your life, uh, working on things that are moving this slow. Now, that said, it also kind of depends on what the expectations are. If this is just like something to help pay for, you know, some of the bills, and they have a full time job, there's a, there's a lot of context, right? Then it could be totally fine. It could be okay, and you know, that's much slower pace could could be fine because they have other things that they're focusing on. Yeah, I think in general we we want to be supportive, uh, so it's really easy for people to just say keep going. But I think more people should not. More often, I think they should. If it's that hard and they're and they're really truly working on it, and they're putting in effort in the right areas like marketing and not not you know skipping in those areas, I think people more often should move on to other projects.
0: I like the point you made about knowing thyself. I say that a lot. Of like, if if you tend this way, then consider the opposite. And if you tend that way, then consider the opposite too. Right? I think that. Such a big part of me going from being unsuccessful to successful was getting to know my own tendencies better and then fighting against them and realizing, fighting against the negative tendencies, the anti-patterns that come out in my mind. And some of the entrepreneurs who I see, most of them, who who aren't successful over and over, it's like they don't have the self-awareness to realize, man, I'm self-sabotaging here, or I'm making the same mistakes over and over. And we could go down a whole rabbit hole of how to how to figure that out. I think on this topic specifically, it's not that I'd say never start a two-sided marketplace. Mostly I say bootstrapping a two-sided marketplace is almost, almost destined to fail. Like I don't know that I've seen anyone, I can think of maybe one or two examples, and usually that person had some type of edge. As you said, they already had an advantage. So like Dan and Ian with Dynamite Jobs, right? That's a job board. You need two sides of a marketplace. They already have a big audience, Certainly on the candidate side, and even the, and then on the hiring side, because they're like you know they're like a sister podcast of startups for the rest of us, where they have entrepreneurs and they have people wanting to be entrepreneurs or wanting to work for entrepreneurs. So they already have a chunk of both sides of that, and they bootstrapped it out of the, you know out of their current business, self-funded it. So I would say, yeah, that's go do that. You know, that's actually using your competitive advantage because they have a moat. <laughs> you know, they have a twelve years, thirteen years of a podcast and an audience in their online community. If I were in the anonymous question asker shoes, I think I would, having done the research and feeling passionate about this problem, I would go ask the people, which you're going to charge one side of it. And I would go to those people now. And I would say, I'm getting this matching service set up. I'm going to charge, however much you're going to charge, $50, $100, $500, whatever it is. And just say, I'm going to do these one-off right now. It's not a marketplace yet, but you know, pay me the money or commit to paying me the money and I will go find you probably pay me the money I would actually want to be paid if I'm going to go do the legwork and I'm going to go find you an amazing mentor and see who actually ponies up this is different than pre-selling a SaaS app that you're going to build for 6 months this is actually a this is really a consulting service or a matching service and ultimately you want a two-sided marketplace you know again clarity.fm is a good example of that right where it's like you get entrepreneurs and experts and consultants on there. And then you get people seeking to find them to be matched or even to pick them out, right? On a website. And Dan Martell hustled like crazy to get people on there, right? To get the experts.
2: Yeah. The nice thing about a lot of these is that you can prove them out really fast. You don't need to build software for them, right? In a lot of these situations. So I I like that advice. I think that's right. Like they're at the place where they should prove out What's, what are the riskiest parts of this? And can you prove those out quickly? You can, without software, 100%. Do that and see if, it, if it'll work.
0: Yeah. And you're going you're gonna to prove out both sides of it. Of If no one's willing to pay you, you talk to five, 10, 15, 20 people, no one's willing to pay you, probably no one's willing to pay you. But if, if suddenly it's like five people write you a check, right, or charge their card on Stripe, and then you go look for mentors and no mentors want to do it, well, you've just disproven that side of it. Great. It's done. The hypothesis is canceled and move on to the next thing. That's how I would think about it. And he built a prototype in Bubble, which is cool, but I don't even know why. I don't even know what you need to do that. I mean, it could literally be an email with a few questions you know, to do some matching of what you're looking for. I don't know how complex the matching process is. I do know that like, we do mastermind matching with MicroConf, right? Um, that's at microconfmasterminds.com. And we do that. I think every quarter, and we do ask quite a bit of information, but it's basically like a reform, you know, reform.app, right? Peter Peterson's, and it goes into an Airtable, and then we match people up manually. I mean, that's what the service is. We didn't build some incredible, algorithm. <laughs> we could long-term, build an incredible algorithm based on time zone and like this and that. Right now, it's it's a manual matching. And that's an interesting one where it is... You could call it a productized service, but it's more just like human automation behind a, behind a form, you know, behind a web form.
2: It almost goes back to that productized service question to where, like we talked about, what are the ones that are more likely to work if you create a product, a software product for it? Like this kind of sounds more like that.
0: So thanks for that question, Anonymous. I hope that was helpful. And our next question, the last of the day, is actually two questions from two different people who sent their questions within a few days of each other. These are both about no code. So Eddie Larson writes, I'm curious about your thoughts on the no code platforms and the solutions being built on them. I'm using Bubble.io and love its robust capabilities. Is this something you see as a framework you could use to build an MVP or something that you could sustainably build an actual startup on and you could grow and uh, not run into scaling issues. Thanks for always being my go-to podcast and providing great episodes, Eddie. Next one is from Carl and in a similar note, he says, I was wondering what you think of using no-code solutions to build and bootstrap SaaS businesses. What are the downside risks other than platform risk I'm thinking of using Bubble, a no-code platform that seems very promising, to build a lifestyle business as a side hustle. I'm unsure if I would then pay someone to create the app properly, means in code, right, if it proves successful, or if I could just use Bubble forever. I would love to hear your thoughts and experience. Love the content. All right, sir, how much thought have you given to no-code? What do you think about what do you Think about their questions?
2: Not too much. I, I like the idea and I was excited about it at one point. I asked a few people that were, that seemed to be digging into no code, what their experience was, because I was super curious about like, how's it working? Are people actually building real businesses with it? What's going on? And in uh, those cases where I asked people what they were doing with it, the answer was kind of the same. It it was interesting. They were doing small stuff, but it, it just wasn't there to where they could build a software startup, a SaaS, not in the in the way that we typically know SaaS products. So yeah, I, I think it's kind of related to what we've talked about, to where I like this where you can create more simple products, something kind of early to prove out an idea uh, if you truly need the software. But in many of those uh, situations, I question whether you even need to build something and you can whether you can just run it with people, right, as a service or just, you know, behind a form, people are doing the actual work, things like that. So yeah, I'm not an expert in this, but based off of what I what I know about it, uh, those are my thoughts on it.
0: Yeah, I think we're in line. And I, I actually did a full like a 20-minute talk on this called the SaaS Founder's Guide to No-Code. It was for MicroConf Remote about six months ago. And you can find that it's for free on our YouTube channel, SaaS Founder. And we'll look it up in the show notes, SaaS Founder's Guide to No-Code. But basically I went through that, I, I did a bunch of research both through Google and talking to some founders I know who have you know experience with no code and tried to wrap my head around the use cases that I could see for this and a lot of it was, it's some basic automation and no code is great for being quick to build, easy to maintain and not needing to code, so I feel like, hey, building an MVP, doing simple CRUD, some internal tools like a line of business app. I and mean, when we, the, our entire podcast production is now through no code; it's through Airtable, right? Because it's just easier than building it out into code. But that's not a product that we're going to sell to other people. And in fact, let's say we did take the startup to the rest of us workflow from Airtable, you know, and start selling it to other people. I think we could get. Five or 10 people paying for it. And it would, what's interesting is it would be very, very hard to automate. That was one example that would be hard to automate with humans. And then I would want to go and have real, like real software. That's, that feels pejorative, but I would want to have code written and build it from right. scratch.
2: It would feel very MVP, right? It would. That's it.
0: The scalability would make me nervous. There's some brittleness because it's integrated with Zapier, and that you know, one out of a hundred of those don't work, right? Or one out of five hundred, whatever number it is, it's too much for my comfort zone. And the UX, the UCI, we can't customize the UI. It's just, it's great for line of business, and it's great that our producer Ron was able to put it together using Airtable in a few weeks, and he's not a developer. But to make a product the way that I think we traditionally think about it longer term, I do think that you have to usually get code involved unless you're going to do something like, again, say mastermind matching, where it's a service that you're offering and it's like fill in a form and then we churn through some stuff in some table. You know what I mean? That's, that's like a whole different thing. We're not selling the product, though. We're selling the end, we're selling the end result. The result is the mastermind. And we could literally do that by sending you an email, having you respond to it, and you know, just a human matching it. So I think that's where it is. I think an MVP is not a bad way to think about it. And I don't want to sound down on no code, because I'm not. Actually, I, I love that it exists, and I love that we are able to, like more people who are non-technical are able to build technical-ish things to accomplish these tasks that would just, you know, imagine the world before Zapier. You don't have to imagine; we were both there. Remember, like to tie anything together, you were like doing a webhook, which it wasn't even webhooks back then, right? It was like let's do an HTTP post with a query string, and then I'm going to parse this. It was a mess. That you know,
2: no, it's a it's a big difference. It's much better. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, I agree. I like the idea. That's why I was so excited about it. Um, you know, for a while, and asking people, talking to people, and, and trying to see what what is actually being done. So I think it's promising. It's just not really it's it's there for certain things, just not there for, you know, building entire like SaaS businesses.
0: Yeah. But here's a question. Do you think it ever will get there or do you think it will continue like I because I think each year no-code does more and more, right? I don't think no-code no will replace developers myself, but I do think that it will allow more and more to be done. But if we look 5 or 10 years out, can you build an entire SaaS on it?
2: Hmm. Tough to say if it, it feels too hard, too big of a challenge, but maybe. I mean, I don't know. I I would hope I would hope so. That would be pretty cool. What do you what do you think?
0: I think back again to that simplicity. Like, imagine Shopify or Heroku having their own no code platform that had their domain objects and their domain model built into it, such that you're not trying to use Airtable, which is just a generic database to tie things together, but to build a Shopify add-on or a <laughs> WordPress plugin, you know, now I'm getting back to the same list, to build any of those step one businesses, it's literally building blocks and the domain is we, It's known. You don't have to build a generic tool. So I think like building add-ons is probably where I see it going. I cannot imagine ever, and I, I rarely say ever, but like I cannot imagine building an ESP out of no code and that working. I can't imagine in 20 years that being possible.
2: Yeah, there would have to be some pretty big advances made in a few areas. It's It just goes back to that, it does go back to that, how simple is it going to be what you're trying to build on the software side? How complicated does that need to be?
0: Yeah. And I I even think back to remember when we used to, you know, let's say 1999, just to build a website, everything was all like custom code, custom HTML. And then These website builders started coming out. There was the Yahoo Builder, and later on, it was Square, Right. Squarespace was years later, but there started to be these builders where you could just get more done. And it was like, okay, sweet. So I don't have to worry about that. Now I can build more complicated things. I'm gonna like start doing stuff with the database and making dynamic this and that, and making searchable. And I'm gonna build shopping carts. I don't know how many shopping carts you built, Ruben, but I'll tell you what: from 2000 to about 2003, I think I built like. 15 shopping carts from scratch each time, right? And it was, it was all the data, mo- because it was before Shopify and the other carts that are out there. And so because there became these no-code solutions or these pre-packaged solutions, it didn't mean, oh no, we don't need developers anymore. What it meant was, good, now I can work on like really custom hard problems, you know, and we could move on and we could build base camps and we could build MailChimps and we could build ever increasing and more complicated software and leave maybe this more mainstream generic software. And I don't say generic in a bad way, but like generalizable and, and highly horizontal software. And that that just happened with SaaS, right? But it's like the same thing might happen with no code, where really early simple problems, little add-ons, and then, oh, there's a website builder, and then, oh, I can build a whole cart by drag and drop it, or whatever, like, I don't know, it'll be the same things in the same order, but I do think it's like from low complexity to high, and that just then frees up development resources to then do more complicated things.
2: If it progresses in that way, then I think, I think it would be generally a good, a good thing for what people are able to put there. There's still nowadays, if you think about it, how much time and effort and money is spent on a lot of these things, which really do feel like they should be a lot easier and, uh, you know, more simple and already figured out. It just feels like way too much. Yeah, if, if those areas could be taken care of with no code, I think that would be, that would be a big deal. That'd be great.
0: That was a good question, Gents, about no code. Thanks so much for sending those in. Ruben Gomez, you are Earthling Works on Twitter and you are working on SignWell.com, which is electronic signature. Folks, if you are currently using DocuSign or HelloSign, you really should head to Signwell. And uh, check out what he's building, because like a true indie SaaS founder, you're innovating and building a pretty cool product over there. We use it ourselves here at Tiny Seed and MicroConf. And in fact, we liked it so much, Tiny Seed invested in it. So check it out, Signwell.com.
2: Yep, thanks for the invite. Appreciate it. I hope that was helpful.
0: And if you have questions for startups or the rest of us, you can email them to us. You know the address. You can go to the website. Really appreciate it when folks send in their questions or comments because it helps us know that this truly is a worldwide global community of ambitious SaaS founders. And we have people at all stages, some folks who are just looking to launch a side project, get a couple thousand dollars a month in revenue and prove that they can do it. Maybe prove it to themselves, maybe prove it to their family members, prove it to the world. And then we have folks running multi, if not decamillion dollar businesses who have just a wealth of experience and, and that's what makes this audience and this community great. So thank you so much for joining me every week. It's really a pleasure to get on the mic here and wrap up episode 605. And I'll be back in your ears again next Tuesday morning.